This is Grace Talks, a production of Simpson United Methodist Church in Bangor, Michigan. Our scripture reading today is Luke 9, 57 through 62. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, God our Lord and Savior. Amen. So, to begin this sermon, I want to take us into the realm of literature. Meaning I want to look at a storytelling format as it was coined by Joseph Campbell, which is best known as The Hero's Journey. The Hero's Journey is a way or a method of storytelling that is probably one of the most common narrative structures that we have to the point where if we look at any of our favorite stories, we can see it in action. At its most basic, and there's a lot more to it than this, it breaks down to the call to adventure, the refusal of the call, the entrance into the unknown, the death, the resurrection, the return with the elixir. And I know that's a super vague and basic way about talking about stories, but if we look again at any of those that we really enjoy, we will see this pattern in action. In Frozen 2, we literally have the song Into the Unknown that shows us that Disney knows that they're using this formula. And likewise, every screenwriting program in the country uses this as a method of teaching. And if you look at any of the earliest story drafts of any movie, you will find them mapped out according to this journey. Well, why do I bring this up? And that's today. That's because today I want to focus in on the death part of the story, but also, and maybe more so, the resurrection part of the story, the lowest or darkest part of the narrative, or, well, I guess I should also mention that this death can be literal, but it can also be metaphorical. It can be a spiritual death or it can be a physical death. It can be spiritual, such as in last week's movie Moana, when Moana was at the lowest point and she gave up the heart of Tefiti because she didn't believe that she could go on. In our movie today, we find Anna experiencing death when, well, 
hold on, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me go back. Let me give a quick and dirty synopsis so that I can try to explain the movie as quickly and as bestly as I can because I assume that not everybody here saw it. The movie Frozen 2 begins where the first movie left off with Elsa as the Queen of Arendelle and her sister Anna living with her along with the lovable sidekick Olaf, the snowman who likes warm hugs, Kristoff, the boyfriend of Anna, and Sven, the reindeer who's better than people. Everything seems fine in Arendelle until... Elsa begins to hear a strange voice that's singing to her and literally calling her to adventure. After some time refusing the call, Elsa ventures along with everyone else into the unknown, and here that means that they enter into a mysterious forest that is described as a source of magic. After some time spent trying to figure out what's going on and learning more about the past, such as the fact that their mother was one of the Northundra or the indigenous people who live in this enchanted forest. Elsa breaks off from Anna in an attempt to find Atahalan, a river full of memory. And in so doing so, she ends up going too deep and winds up frozen. Elsa did it. <laughs> right. Anna... <laughs> trapped in a cave along with Olaf, learns of her sister's apparent death by watching as Olaf returns to the snow that he was created from because Elsa's magic, the thing that holds him together, has gone. But Anna knows that she can't give up, that she still has work to do, and so she gets up and she does the next right thing. She escapes the cave and she destroys a dam, which she learns was a trick of her grandfather's, which was done in an attempt to destroy both magic and the North Undra people who rely on that magic. The dam is destroyed and Elsa dethaws, bringing back Olaf in the process, and all is made right in Arendelle, and Anna becomes queen, and Elsa remains in the enchanted forest, along with a magic horse. So with that out of the way, I want to talk about Anna. I want to talk about this part in the story where Anna is experiencing the death. And she doesn't know the resurrection is about to come. In our Christian vocabulary, what this means is that Anna was about to let the dead bury the dead. Now, I want to walk on eggshells here because this line of Jesus upon first glance really sounds a bit cruel. A man comes to Jesus and asks if he can follow him, and Jesus says, let the dead bury, your, bury their own dead. You follow me. What the heck, Jesus? That doesn't sound cool, and that doesn't sound compassionate. That seems, well, like a really hard thing to do, expect of someone especially someone who is grieving the loss of a loved one. We're all in a season of death. We're, in a, we're, uh, we're two years into a pandemic, and here in the United States, we've crossed the 900,000 threshold. In the world, there's some 5.7 million people who have died from the coronavirus, and an untold number that consists of 
other types of casualties caused by the neglect in care brought about by the weight of the pandemic upon a strained healthcare system. We all know someone who's passed in recent memory, and in our case here, we all know someone very well who's passed in recent memory as we still mourn the loss of Mary Lee. So what of it? Do we let the dead bury the dead, and do we proclaim the kingdom of God and forget and move on? Well, no, and yes. Which isn't that a cop-out of a pastor's answer. <laughs> Rather than being clear, it's being vague. And so let me try to explain as best I can by using Anna as a model, as an example, and saying that there is no shame in grief. As long as you don't allow your grief to allow you to hurt another person, then there's no wrong way to grieve. We need to grieve, we need to lament, we need to mourn. It's a part of our basic human psychology. And when we ignore that part of us, when we push down our grief, we put ourselves into very dangerous waters. So let me say that grief is good, grief is important. If you need to grieve, you need to grieve, and you shouldn't feel bad about that, or you shouldn't feel less for it. So Anna, near the end of the movie, is at the lowest point, the great scene of sadness. Her sister is gone, Olaf is gone, and she is cold and wet and trapped in a dark cave with no apparent way out. Things seem hopeless. This would be a perfectly legitimate time to give up. It would be a perfectly justifiable time to just lay down and die, for what else can she really do? Things for her are so hopeless that it's all that she can do. It's all that she can do to just sit there and mourn. As the lyrics from the song she sings then goes, I've seen dark before, but not like this. This is cold. This is empty. This is numb. The life I knew is over. The lights are out. Hello, darkness. I'm ready to succumb. This grief as a gravity, it pulls me down. I have to say, I've never watched a scene or heard a song that so succinctly sums up the feeling of absolute grief that expertly paints this picture of loss. It's tangible here in this movie, and it's true. But here's what happens next, and this is the important part. She gets up. She goes on, she continues, and to go back to the lyrics of the song, but a, vo but a tiny voice whispers in my head, you are lost, hope is gone, but you must go on and do the next right thing. How to rise from the floor when it's not you, I'm rising for just to do the next right thing. Take a step, step again, it's all I can do. The next right thing. I won't look too far ahead, it's too much for me to take, but break it down to this next breath, this next step, this next choice is one that I can make. And I gotta say, I saved you all the pain of having me try to sing my way through that. <laughs> Anna in this moment knows that even though she's broken, even though it's clear that Everything will never be the same again. She does the next right thing. 
So I've struggled with depression and anxiety for most of my life, as it turns out, though it wasn't something that I really knew for certain until more recently when I began to see a therapist and get treated for it. And though my depression is mild next to the some of the people I know, it's still this powerful force. It's still this thing that I have to live with. It's this thing that drags you down. It's not necessarily something that makes you sad. Sadness would be easy. No, it's something that makes you feel as though you don't want to go on. As though you just want to lay down in bed all day. As though you just want to be left alone. Just turn the lights off and sleep. There are days for me and for millions like me where it's all we can really do to get out of bed and take a shower in the morning. It's all we can do to feed ourselves, to get dressed, and to go out and do something. Now, as it turns out, some one in five Americans suffer from depression or anxiety in one form or another. And of those one in five or 40 million people, only about 37% of people are being treated for it. So I'd say it's, there's a good chance that some of the people in the audience and some of the people listening online might be one of those one in five people. Now, of course, this brings up that sort of discounting of our own experiences, our own suffering that we all are kind of expected to do, that sort of mentality that tries to say that my suffering isn't so bad. So-and-so has it worse, so therefore I shouldn't feel too bad about where I'm at. This is something that we all do. This is something that's encouraged that we do. But for the purpose of this sermon, I want to say cut that out and just know that you're not alone. Just because someone else might have it worse than you do, it doesn't mean that your experiences aren't valid. It doesn't mean that your pain or suffering isn't real. Frozen 2 couldn't have come out at a better time. It was released in November of 2019, and who was to know that just in a few short months, the world would be entering into one of the worst things to happen to it in almost 100 years? Who was to know that the message of doing the next right thing would be so relevant? So the question worth asking is how many of us in the last two years have had this feeling, this temptation to just sit down and stop? To just give up, to succumb, to give in to the grief that we've experienced, to, to simply sit in the pain and let the grief of the world overwhelm us. I know I have. We take a look at our bodies and we listen to what they need and we do that for them. Now we're Americans which means that there's a good chance that to one degree or another, we are or have been workaholics at some point in our lives. So let me be clear and say that I'm not saying that we need to throw ourselves into our work and just stomp our grief down and ignore it. No, I'm saying that 
we need to walk this fine line of doing what we need to do while also being patient with ourselves when it comes to the things that we don't need to do right now. So I believe there's a more generous way to read Jesus's words in this passage, and that is to read it as a warning about allowing ourselves to become haunted. When it comes to loved ones who have gone on, there are entire industries such as psychic mediums and spirit guides that are snake oil salesmen and charlatans who devote themselves to preying on the grieving. They charge a fee, of course so that you can talk to your loved one, so that we can find out if they're okay, so that we can tell them something we didn't tell them in life. And so while I'm not going to speak as to whether or not that's within the realm of possibility, I will say that if someone is offering you a method and they're charging a fee, 100% of the time they're liars. There's a very real struggle that comes with losing a loved one, and that is the sense of just ending. What that also means is that there's this struggle, there's very real temptation of being stuck in that moment, of never moving on. I know a family who lost a pair of loved ones a few years back, and as a form of grieving, what this family has done is, I would say, a little bit unhealthy. As many people do when the family lost these loved ones, they chose cremation, and as many many funeral homes do, they provided the family with an urn containing the loved one's remains. However, what's on the more unhealthy side of this story is that rather than burying the ashes or creating some sort of memorial site, they've chosen to carry the urns around to refer to them by name, to bring them on family vacations, to include them in family photos. And again, I don't want to be dismissive because death is a powerful force and we all grieve in different ways. However, the decision to hold on to these urns, to hold on to the belief that their loved one is with them in this way has caused very real struggles and very real strains upon present relationships. And so there have been family arguments over pictures and family calendars that has caused very real harm, born out of a desire to keep the memory of these people alive. Now again, there's no wrong way to grieve as long as we're not hurting someone else with that grief. So what can we learn about Frozen 2 as it relates to life, as it relates to the gospel? Well, I think is I think that is that we are to do the next right thing. We are to live in a way where we simply don't give up hope in the face of hopelessness. That we don't just give in to grief and mourning and forget to live. That we don't cease. That we don't stop. Because at the end of the day, the truth about our loved ones that we have lost is that they wouldn't want us to stop living on account of them. 
they wouldn't want us to allow them to become an anchor, something stopping us from ever going on. They wouldn't want us to sacrifice our life on account of them. In the end, we can't just lay down and stop. We have to continue on. We have to experience our grief, but not allow that grief to get in the way of our living, to get in the way of our relationships. We have to, well, rather than letting the dead bury us, we have to let the dead bury the dead. We've all had our moments of death in our hero's journey. We've all had our lowest points. We've all lost loved ones and been tempted with that moment of just stopping and ceasing. But the best thing that we can do when it comes to heartache, the best thing to do when it comes to grief, the best thing we, to do when it comes to pain is to enter into the resurrection. It's to get up and take the next step and maybe the next one and do the next right thing. <laughs>